This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Hey, Gregory here. Before we get started, just a few things. If you're enjoying this latest season, please tell people you know, maybe write a review. It really helps the show get the word out. And second, this next story, it's about addiction, how people talk about it to their friends and to their family. It's a topic that may be sensitive for some listeners, and we are not using the names of people in AA programs to respect that group's desire for their members to remain anonymous. For Julia Simon, this all started with the birthday cakes. The birthday cakes, they're a part of Alcoholics Anonymous in L.A., Specifically, Southern California, yes. So every year you're sober, you get a birthday cake to celebrate how many years of sobriety you have. They have a pianist who plays happy birthday when you get a birthday cake. This is my mom. It's just, you know, Hollywood, kiss, kiss on each cheek. I remember when I was in high school, she was going to AA, and she would invite my dad and my brother and me to go to these celebrations. There are lots of sober celebrities. They have a buffet. And the, the rest of, of AA makes fun of Southern California for it. Mm. Yeah. So we went and gave her a birthday cake. And this was something that we did a few years. Um, and then, for me, it just became something that I resented doing. Mm. And I didn't exactly know why. You you didn't know why you resented it at the time? No, I didn't. So this is through my 20s. Right. Um, so were you living with her? I wasn't living it with her. But mm. when I'd visit her, say my dad and I were watching TV downstairs, we'd hear things crashing above us. Mm. Um, is it just that my mom's really, really clumsy? Is it that she's really tired. We all thought it might be a medical condition, and we brought her to doctors. Julia couldn't figure it out. And then one night, her mom did go to the emergency room. Her dad brought her in after she was thrashing around in her sleep. The doctors did all these neurological tests. It took hours. But the only problem they found was the alcohol in her blood. The reality was that she was secretly drinking. For seven years, she was drinking and lying about it. So I, I have to say thank you so much for talking to me in the first place. And It was about a year later that my mom and I sat down to talk about this. Where did it take place? It took place in my uncle's study. And I don't want you to share to squeak. <laughs> I brought my microphone. So, yeah. I'm going to sit on the floor. Oh, okay. We ended up sitting on the floor because the chairs were squeaking. Maybe it'd be easier if there wasn't a microphone in my face. Oh, okay. Well, I. Yeah, I need this for me. Um, if. Okay. So, can. Okay, well. She said, okay. I'm not gonna put anything out there without consulting you. Okay. I'm curious how it felt to receive the cake when you were drinking. It felt, um, I, you know, I met your dad auditioning for a play. There's a part of me that's an actress. I was acting sober. I have always kind of thought of my mom as a really terrible actress. You know, just like kind of a lot of like hand movements and like 
big facial expressions. And so I I made a joke about this. I was like, you've never been a very good actress. No I know. I know. That's why I gave it up a long time ago. I know. I know. But then I was talking to her about the fact that when we'd go out to dinner and there'd be something on the menu that had rum in it, like some dessert. You know, if you accidentally had a bite, it was this whole production. And And you say, I'm not a good actress? Sorry. I mean, I I did that to to look like I was sober, Julia. So you really, oh, okay, you were pretty good then. <laughs> I mean, it was very disingenuous. But why didn't you tell anyone we could have helped you? Because it was more important to me to keep up the illusion that I was sober. I was committed to looking looking like I was okay. I guess I just... I guess, huh, um, I'm just trying to see if I wrote a question that, that might help me phrase this. Um, I mean, did it bother you? Did it bother you that I didn't want to go to the cake things? I don't know, Julia. If, if, you, if it did, it's okay. I really don't know. My mom keeps saying that she doesn't know. Julia, I really... She doesn't remember. Because the alcohol impaired my memory. I'm trying to ask her basic questions. And... I'm not hiding my impatience. Same thing. I don't know what what you're angry with me about. If you'd like to explode at me, go ahead. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not angry at specific things. I'm angry at the lying, which is just one humongous seven year period. You know. I know that I lied to myself. You lied to me. I lied to everybody, Julia. Honesty is a big part of AA. Honesty with yourself, honesty with others. And as Julia struggled with her mom's lies, she started to feel frustrated at AA. She wondered if those birthday cakes, those public celebrations of success, had somehow trapped her mom in a place where she felt like she needed to lie. Now, this is not, I should say, how her mom sees it. She does not blame anyone in AA but herself. Looking back, Julia thinks she became a journalist in part because of a feeling that it was hard to get the full truth from her mom. And so, with her mom in recovery and her reporter's notebook in her hand, Julia started calling up rehab programs around the world to find a place that might have actually detected her mom's lies. This place. The first time we talked on the phone, you said something to me that I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want to talk more to this guy. You were like, you know how Indonesians smile and they're not really smiling? Yeah, because the culture tells us we have to be polite. When we don't know the answer, then we have to smile. When we feel threatened, we have to smile. I mean, lying is part of the business. I'm Gregory Warner, and this is Rough Translation, the show where we go to far-off places with stories that hit close to home. So much of the way we in the U.S. talk about addiction treatment starts with coming clean about your past. Admitting you have a problem is the first step to solving the problem. So Julia Simon wanted to know, what might addiction treatment look like in a place where the culture is telling you to put a rosy face on things? Today, she takes us to Indonesia, 
to seek out some answers for her American mom. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. We're back with Rough Translation. And if we started this story with Julia's mom in L.A. lying to make herself look like she was fine, the first person Julia is going to introduce us to in Indonesia is someone whose whole neighborhood is conspiring to lie for him. Redwan is addicted to heroin. He's been in and out of jail. He's HIV positive. He tells me he slept on train tracks. But before any of this, Redwan was a kid growing up in the Indonesian capital of Jakarta. So we're walking down a very skinny street and there are all these flags, a bunch of birds in cages. Oh, another motorbike. These narrow, narrow streets, we actually call them jalan tikus, which means street of the mouse. Everybody's very close together. Oh, they live in here? Hello. Kasi. Ridwan's family lived in houses side by side. Six brothers and sisters. Ridwan's big sister, Aini, says when Ridwan was a kid, he was always with a book. He was a nerd. Um, you said he was very smart. And then he entered middle school. She says that's when he went a wild way. When Redwan was a teenager, he went to what he calls a prison for children, like juvie. But then he'd get home leave. Every time I got a free time to go back to my home with, with, with my mother, my uh, neighbors always asking me, like, how's your school? How is your studying going, the neighbors would ask. How's your pelajaran di pesantren? In the pesantren, your boarding school. So I realized that, wow, my mother tried to keep secret what happened about me. Why? Mengapa? My family, my grandfather, he's a role model in my neighborhood. Ridwan's grandfather was an Islamic scholar. His father was a leader at their local mosque. So part of their house is the mosque. It's like you come in with green and carpets. That's why uh, my uh, neighborhood tried to keep it secretly. They afraid they humiliate my my father and grandfather. Pada pada akhirnya mereka tahu. You're saying they actually knew. Yeah. Everybody noticed it. Ridwan's neighborhood is kind of known for all these printing shops, and when Ridwan's addiction got worse. Ridwan was stealing the equipment from them. I sell it to someone else, 
and the money I use it to buy a drugs. And one day, the owners of, of the printing agency come to my my home. The owners gathered to talk to his dad. Orang datang ke rumah saya menemui bapa saya. They told my father, uh, if your son uh, needs some money, why don't he just work with me? I can give him a job. So even when you stole from them, they didn't. They didn't say it. <laughs> I'm translating, and he's saying. Everything has to look good. Everything yeah. has to look like everything's okay. Yeah. In Indonesia, there's this one word that captures this idea. It's uh, more like uh, malu. The word is malu. Like, uh, if you don't want to feel ashamed, stay away from trouble. There are a lot of definitions for the Indonesian word malu. But malu, the word malu also means shy. Doesn't it? My interpreter no, Barman and I would go back and forth about it. Malu, like shy, like uh, Wait, malu, malu, and malu are shy, different malu words? There are even instructional videos aimed at Western business people on how to deal with malu culture. Conflict avoidance. Most Indonesians value maintaining the appearance of harmony at all costs. Saying yes when they mean no. On Java, which is the most populous island in the world, you have all these different languages and ethnicities and religions. This is extremely useful, you know? Like, you can keep things chill with Malu. When I lived in Indonesia, I felt like Malu was sort of this glue that helps stick people together, especially living in tight quarters. But Redwan says when it came to his addiction, he found Malu confusing. Jadi, itu orang tidak bercerita kalau saya nyuri apa. <laughs> he uses a word, bingung, that means confused, bewildered, at sea. Because it almost didn't seem to matter to people if he was sober or not, as long as he pretended to be sober. Ridwan and his family were not alone in this. Actually, around the time that he was struggling in the 90s, there was a flood of drugs into Indonesia from different parts of Southeast Asia. And the country's response was mostly either mental hospitals or jail. Indonesia still has some of the harshest drug policies in the world, death sentences for dealing or producing drugs. And at first, one of the only places that offered anything like rehab was a program founded by Joyce Jelani Gordon. She translated the Big Blue Book of AA into Indonesian. Pencerahan. Pencerahan spiritual. And she struggled to interpret some of the Christian concepts of 12 steps for Indonesia's Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists. I didn't want uh, the 12 steps to be too much of a certain, a certain uh, religion. She and her husband, an American, David Gordon, felt like they were doing something new in Indonesia, encouraging people to speak openly and honestly about their addiction. David, as an addict, can, can say, you know, I'm an addict, so... There's no point in lying with us. At that time, there was only one government recovery center in the whole country. So when people like Ridwan landed in Joyce and David's program with its confessional approach, that was also confusing and bewildering. We call it American culture. Sam Nugraha is the guy I called up in Indonesia before my trip, and he went to Joyce and David's program. Because it's very American when people saying out loud their feelings to strangers. He still remembers the shock of going to his first group meeting. 
they always introduce themselves by telling hi my name is X and I'm an addict and the and the group immediately respond hi X like what's going on <laughs> was this just like kind of mind-boggling to just absolutely I was scared to be honest because it's it's twisting everything that you believe in our culture we are not supposed to expose our shortcomings to other people we are not supposed to tell our our feelings all his life sam had been taught that his individual pain it's not so important to talk about just man up <laughs> and this guy tells him uh, you are as sick as your secrets you're as sick uh, as your secrets yeah so sam finally stands up in one of the meetings says hi i'm sam they say Hi, Sam. It felt good to say it out loud. And Sam embraced this approach. He made it through the 12 steps. He graduated from client to peer counselor. Looking back, Sam does remember some things that didn't work. Like this one time he told this painful story about his father. The other Indonesians in the group, they started taking what Sam said in the meetings and throwing it back at him. When it's shared, that means it's become public's uh, <laughs> domain. Sometimes they use that when they talk to me. Like you have dad issues, something like that. He had daddy issues. The concept of group therapy is new with, with our culture. It broke the rules about Malu, these rules about staying discreet. It's, it's quite difficult to practice sharing Honesty, open mind, and willingness, you know, those things, uh, those slogans they have in 12 steps. It's really difficult. Yeah. That's when I think, yeah, the traditions, the regulations of the meeting is confidentiality, but in practice, it's up to the people who hear the stories. It was when Sam was working as a counselor that he really started questioning the program. He had this one client who did everything he was supposed to do. When he relapsed, he admitted it, he came back, he talked about his flaws, and Sam would try to help him. By help means to get him out of drugs. That's what I have in my thought. And he did help him. The guy graduated the program, he went out into the world, and then he overdosed. And that's actually give me, get me thinking what was wrong. I mean... What can prevent him from dying? Sam wondered, what if preventing people from dying was more important than keeping them honest and sober? So Sam started his own program with a different approach to sobriety and a different approach to lying. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. 
Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. so beautiful like you can see the mountains and it's so sam's program is called ruma singa pekka their motto is when the world rejects you come here the rehab is run out of this peach colored house in the mountains of bogor an hour south of jakarta who are these dogs these are also addicts (laughs) (laughs) what are they addicted to Uh, human i suppose these are the grandma Some clients do cognitive behavioral therapy, others methadone, there's job training. We do not decide what's best for our clients. The clients have to decide uh, what's best for them. Do some of them keep keep doing heroin just like once a week or something? Uh, Yeah, some, some of them are still using. They can't use on the premises, but Sam does allow patients to use drugs or drink alcohol while still in the program. It's the first rehab like this in Indonesia, but it's part of this school of thought called harm reduction. Harm reduction can mean lots of different things. It can mean giving people clean needles to do drugs. It can mean prenatal clinics designed for people addicted to drugs, or even in some places, supplying you with small amounts of the drugs that you're addicted to. And these programs do provoke strong reactions. When Sam's clinic opened up, his neighbors attacked him for his approach. You just keep people using drugs. You're a new dealer in town. You're a new dealer in town? I'm a new drug dealer in town, that's what he said. You're just, you know, helping people to keep using drugs. The way Sam sees it, the way a lot of harm reduction people see it, addiction is a disease like diabetes or anything else. There is a change in the brain structures, even the brain's function. You know, part of, well, maybe the main reason why I'm interested in addiction is because of my mom. I told um, Sam about my mom, how she was in AA and sober, but then how she started drinking again and lied about it. Like, how, how do you see that? It's very humane. I mean, human are fragile, right? Do you think AA is forgiving enough to people who are sober for 10 years and then suddenly are back to square one? I think the program, yeah. But the yeah. people, it de- depend, depend on the group of that people. People who are in the group could think like, oh, he's a loser. You know, many people feel ashamed when they slip, they use again, and then they don't want to admit because it gives that feelings of, I'm being a failure. It should be like, I still need more help. But why, why did the 12-step program not work for you? Remember Redwan, the guy who grew up on those narrow streets whose neighbors lied on his behalf? When I asked him about his experience in AA, why did it not work? He doesn't blame AA. He says he's the one who failed the program. 
I myself who the one didn't follow the rules I always try to not following what my mentor said to me In the end he felt he couldn't be honest with his sponsor just like my mom Now Ridwan's in Sam's program Karena saya juga punya goal saya my ultimate goal to be a clean person Ridwan's coming to him with feelings of failure and shame guilt to myself and Sam needs to get past all that in order to reach him as a client Sam pernah waktu itu Sam Ridwan says Sam once saw one of his photos on Instagram a photo of him with a girl Sam Look at it. And Sam asked me, is that your girlfriend? I said, no, it's not my girlfriend. Actually, it's my girlfriend. She is my girlfriend. But I would rather keep it secretly. He lied. He thought Sam would tell him to break up with his girlfriend because there are rules about relationships and recovery. So you lied to him. Uh, did he know you were lying? <laughs> he knew. You think he knew. Ridwan says Sam tells his clients if you start with a lie, you're stuck with it. But when Sam says this stuff, he's gentle about it. Of course. <laughs> That's part of our job. He calls it teasing. Here in Pekka is everybody knows when you are lying to other person. They call you, you are playing a game. If you start playing, if you start the game, you are the one who going to finish the game. Sam is like, okay, I'll play the game with you. And whenever you want to end it, I'm here. A few months after I went to Indonesia, I called up Sam to hear how he was doing. Okay, so I'm, I'm recording. Is Ridwan still with you? No, he's not. He told me Ridwan was back to using drugs. He was back to his old business. I heard that. I think he's maybe in trouble again. Oh, oh no. Do you do who, where did you hear that from? A part of me hoped as a daughter of an alcoholic that maybe Sam did have the solution. That maybe in the mountains of Java I'd find a program that just figured it all out. It's not like that. When it comes to relapse, Sam's results are pretty much the same as everywhere else. Absolutely. I mean, uh, but he measures not on whether people get sober, but on their quality of life. Their opinion about their lives. Whether they're holding down jobs, whether they're healthy, how their relationships are going. Twenty-six questions. Not only is Sam's program growing, but he's consulting with the Indonesian government. He's doing trainings across the Asia Pacific region. When I got back to the US, I thought a lot about what I learned from Sam. Of course, I wanted my mom to have a program like Sam's, and in fact, she's seeking different kinds of help now. She's in a relapse prevention program. She's learning about the science of her addiction. She's taking a low dose of an antidepressant. But I realized there was something I learned from Sam that wasn't even about my mom. It was more about what I could do. A new way to talk to her. So, so yeah, so so basically with with uh, Sam, first I wanted to tell her about Malu. People want everything to look okay. Yeah, do you have a thought? I, well, 
in certain families, it's also a Maluk culture. My mom basically jumped in and was like, oh, yes, yes, I know this culture. Do you think a little bit like your family? Right. No, everything was fine. <laughs> um, and I'm coming back, giving her a book report. And she's like, yeah, I know. And then I told her what Sam's doing with Malu, this way of talking to people. Not be like, you're lying to me. Like, I know that you repeated a lie, but kind of, um, you're shaking your head. Rather than confront them about being dishonest, let them kind of weave their tale and being patient with them to, to help them understand what's going to happen if you tell the truth. It's not it's going to help you. It's not going to hurt you. I am not going to judge you. That's how I, I, he probably gains their trust so that they can be honest. Is that, is that true? Yeah, you nailed it. So I'm wondering if anyone did that for you. No, I, I, uh, sadly, I, no one, no one did. My mom's still in AA. She won't miss a meeting. She feels like she really needs that support to stay on track. But now she realizes that some of the AA teachings don't work for her. There's a prayer about character defects. Do you want to hear that, Courtney? Sure. (laughs) My creator, I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. You know, it was helpful till it wasn't helpful anymore. Yeah. They felt a little punishing. It feels, especially when we talk about character defects, it feels like that's all I am. Like there's a character in Peanuts, Pigpen, and you never really saw him. It was just um, like a giant tumbleweed of dust, and Pigpen was underneath there. And saying that prayer, you know, take away my, you know, my character defects, that it felt like I am such a flawed human being. A friend of mine from Indonesia told me that Malu is being afraid to take off your mask. Even though everyone knows what's underneath it, you still don't take it off. And my mom has this instinct to keep her mask on, even with me. And um, how do you feel knowing that? You, no, no, you know what? Actually, it's actually, it's a relief, really. Really? I mean, I'm not going to say I don't have any more anger. I still do have anger. Mm-hmm. Like, I asked her about that moment where I'm like, you lied to me. Yeah. yeah. In the interview, I, I said you were lying to me, and you said you were lying to everyone. But, you know, you were lying to me. I know you were lying to everyone, but you were lying to me. And I'm not quite over it. (laughs) Whatever I can do to make that better, I would, Julia. I'm deeply sorry. All I can say is that I was lying to myself very deeply. Um, Can I talk to you a little bit about something that I learned in my relapse prevention group? Well, we were talking about the relapse cycle. You know, um, last time she started telling me about her classes, 
and kind of changing the conversation from the questions that I was trying to engage her with, you could hear the impatience in my voice. I was trying to confront her. And this time... I was in the grips of a disease. I just listened. And it, that can sound like... Maybe that's sounding like a cop-out to you. I, that I was lying to continue my disease, to continue my right to drink. And... I don't, I don't know how to apologize for that. That's okay. I think the thing that's, it's, I hear you. I really do hear you. Julie. I do hear you. <laughs> you know what? Take as long as you need. No, but you know what? I, I really do hear you. I, I'm, I'm working on, on don't getting worry. to it. I no, feel I'm... it. I feel like you're <laughs> working hard. I really feel Good. <laughs> Today's show was produced by Jess Jang. Marianne McCune is our editor. And thanks to all of those who lent their ears and their minds to this episode. Laura Starczewski, Lou Olkowski, Sally Helm, Noel King, Yoe Shaw, Michael May, Sana Krasikov, Prodita Sabarini, and Nadia Woodhouse. Thanks also to interpreter Barman Simatupang, Siti Farhana, Ferry Kamil, Laurel McLaurin, Gavin Bart, Anna Lemke, Dan Chikaroni, Danielle Fuster Marti, Benjamin Chin, Margaret Scott, Anastasia Tsiolkas, Megan Reed, Bobby Allen, and Aubrey Belford. The Rough Translation High Council is Neil Carruth, Will Dobson, and Anya Grunman. Jane Gilvin fact-checked this episode. Greta Pinninger and Katie Doggart helped with research. Mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. John Ellis composed music for our show. Mike Cruz scored the episode. Drop us your thoughts or your stories at roughtranslationnpr.org or find us on Twitter at Roughly. I'm Gregory Warner. Back in two weeks with more Rough Translation. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.